the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, great seeing you. Good to have you with us. And if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans for several months now, and we've made our way to chapter 8 in the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament, which is the back part of your Bible. The Old Testament's the first part. The back part's the New Testament. Most of the time you can find it because it's red letters. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of began that. And uh, and if you'll turn right, keep going, you're going to find this amazing letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome. And we've been looking together at those verses and have come to this exciting chapter in our study. Now, as we look at this verse, and we looked at it last time we were together in in some depth, and what I want to do today, rather than dig deep into this verse and the context of it, is to kind of take a broader view of this passage for our time together today. So, as we get started, let me ask you a question. Do you have any idea what the world's favorite verse of Scripture is? If you had to guess, what would you say? Okay, all kinds of answers. Um, Years ago, we had no way of knowing that, right? But as a result of some online platforms like Bible Gateway and UVerse, the UVerse app, they track that kind of data. And uh, according to, uh, to, to Gateway, um, John 3.16 is the favorite verse uh, among people today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We understand why that would be a favorite verse, don't we? I, I would need to tell you, though, it's a common verse for those of us that are in this room. I want to remind you that people outside this room don't have a clue what that means. And if you think that wearing a shirt that says John 3.16 or a cap that says John 3.16 might be a witness for Christ, you might want to rethink that because a lot of people out there don't have any idea. I saw an interview one time. Have you seen at professional football games where guys will hold up the sign John 3.16? Have you seen this at a game? And, uh, and there was a guy, in a, and, and every time they came by, by a boy, he'd hold up the sign John 3.16. And there was a guy that went out into the crowd of people that were there and began to ask them, what that sign meant. And you know, the majority of the people didn't have a clue. They were saying, well, I don't know. I, 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 I guess he wants to meet some guy named John on level three at 16. But they had no idea. Well, I'm not saying don't wear that, but just be prepared to help people understand what it means. Now, that, according to Gateway, is the number one favorite verse among all of those who use that app. The, the next four favorite verses, um, they, they, they vary in placement, but they're always in the top five. Uh, one of them is Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to do good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Another one is Philippians 4.13. That was one that Tim Tebow put right here. You remember that? On, on, on his face as a football player. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the next one was Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they are a comfort to me. And then to round it off, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and very courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, according to you verse, John three sixteen is not the most popular verse. Instead, it's the verse that we're looking at together today in Romans 8, verse 28. In fact, I, I might call this the most popular promise in all the Bible. And so as you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, I, I want you to remember this. Paul has already said some pretty amazing things in chapter 8. So the reason chapter 8 is recognized as perhaps the greatest of all the chapters in the book of Romans. In fact, some people say that it's the greatest chapter in all the Bible. He begins with this amazing statement that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And from there, he begins to talk about what it means to live in the Spirit. We talked about what it means to live in the Spirit. And then he talks about how to walk in the Spirit. We talked about that. How do we have victory in our life? We learn to walk in the Spirit, learning to hear his voice and learning to respond to his promptings. Then Paul talked about the importance of thinking in the Spirit, as if, 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 if what I think determines where I go, my, then, then I need to learn to think in the Spirit. And so we talked about what does it mean to think in the Spirit. And then we took two weeks to talk about what Paul talks about when he says we are to pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, after Paul has had these remarkable truths given in the first part of chapter 8, no question that many of the people who received this this, this letter from Paul had a question. If all of that is true, if there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, and we can live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and think in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit, why is life so hard? Why is it that we have friends who have been arrested and taken away from their families and thrown in prison? Paul, if all of this stuff you're saying is right, why is life so hard? And you know what? Even though we're, we're not in Rome and the recipients of this letter, I think we all have the same question, don't we? If God wants us to live in victory and provides all of these resources, why in the world is life so hard? So amid the questions, what I think Paul does is he wants us to know how to triumph in every experience in life, even the bad ones, or I might even say it this way, especially the bad ones. And so he offers this promise that is to every experience in life, every experience that I have in life, God is at work 
to bring about good for me and glory for him. So look at the verse, you're familiar with it. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, Romans 8, 28 is the favorite verse of those that are in America according to you verse, but I add that second verse along with it to give some clarity. So let's talk about that verse in a, in a broader sense today. We looked kind of drilled down deep last time we were together, but in a broader sense, I, I want to look at the promise itself. Now, the promise begins, if you will, with the certainty. In fact, you see with me the certainty of the promise. Perhaps that's the reason that it's favored. That's the reason that, that, that we can identify with it because Paul begins with this phrase, for we know. Now, the word know that he used there is not just an outward knowledge. It's not just a knowledge that I know because I read it somewhere or because I saw it somewhere. The word that he uses describes a knowledge that is internal, a truth that, that, that we have a deep certainty about. It's the kind of knowledge that gives us power. It's the kind of knowledge that gives us confidence. You know that, that knowledge can, you, you've heard the old phrase, that knowledge brings power, and it does. If there are certain things I know, then I have confidence because I know this to be true. And if I know that to be true, there is a confidence and a surety that is given to me and a power. Now, Paul is saying we know this to be true in contrast to what he said we don't know earlier. What did he said we don't know? He said we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray. Sometimes the challenges that we face in life and the difficulty that we encounter, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to pray. We don't know where to go. Life becomes so overwhelming, I have no answers. And Paul says, in those moments when I don't know how to pray and I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go and I don't know what's going on, there's one thing I can know for sure. In the midst of the hurt and the heartache and confusion, we can know this, that God's at work, that God is working in my life. I can know that. That know, you can know, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. It, it, it perhaps is, a, it is really kind of a, a reference to how he's able to live in victory in his life. Because he uses it in several places. In 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, Paul says, For we know, again, for we know that if this earthly tent is torn down, we've got a, we've got a, a house made in heaven eternal by God. He's talking about this old body. And Paul says, you know what? I've got confidence of one thing. I know that when I die, I'm going to shed this old body and put it aside. And I've got another home that is waiting for me. And the knowledge of that gives me hope in the face of death. 
Knowing that allows me to confront death without any fear, without any worry, without any concern. And it even enables me to face the death of my loved ones with the hope that I'm going to see them again. But not only that, Paul uses the term again in, in, in 1 Timothy when he said this, For I know whom I believed in. And I know that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul said, the things I know are the things that hold me. The things I know to be certain are the things that, that, that when the wind of life blows and the storms rage, those are the things that keep me steady. And so he offers this promise to the people in Rome who are facing distress who are facing challenges, who are facing the unknown and the uncertain without any understanding, he said, well, listen to me. Here is the certainty. We know. We know. And then he goes on to the content of the promise. For we know all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things mesh together. All things fit together like the gears in a, in, in, in a wheel. All things work together. It's the big picture of life. In the big picture of life, everything works together for good. That's what God is able to do. Now, it's interesting that in the text, he says all things, not some things, not a few things, not just certain things, not just most things, but all things. But we know that all things work together for good. That, that, that means all things, even the things I don't understand, the things that are good in my life work for good, but also the things that are bad in my life work for good. And you do know that good and bad is relative, right? Do you, do you remember, some of you do, and, and uh, I'm going to bring you way back in time. Do you remember when there was a TV show on, and I think it was on a Saturday night called Hee Haw? Do you remember that? Yeah, some of the adults in the room are like, oh yeah, we remember that. You kids, I am just, it, it, you know, my heart goes out to you because you have missed so many of the amazing things in life growing up. Uh, but you might be able to find some old versions of Hee Haw and look at it. And I don't think you'll be able to look at it for more than 30 seconds and it'll just drive you batty. But there was a segment on that, and some of you'll remember this, where there's two guys bantering back and forth. And I remember on one occasion, this guy said to the other guy, he says, hey, hey, you know what? My daughter finally got married. She's 50 years old and she finally got married. The other guy said, well, that's good. You remember that segment? That's good. He said, well, man, the guy she married is ugly. Now, can I tell you, he didn't just get whipped by an ugly stick. He got beat by the whole tree. That guy is ugly. And he said, oh, man, that's bad. He said, well, he is rich. Oh, well, that's good. He said, oh, yeah, he's filthy rich. Man, he's got more money than, than, than anybody around. Well, that's good. 
But you know what? He is stingy. That guy's holding on to the, he's still holding on to the first penny he ever made. He hadn't spent a dime. He's held on to it. He's the most stingy human being on the planet. Oh, well, that's bad. But he did build my daughter a mansion. Well, that's good. Well, the mansion burned down last night. Well, that's bad, yeah, and he was in it. <laughs> so good and bad can be relative, right? But what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture is that God is at work in our life in all things, even the things that we think are bad, even the things that we think are good, he is at work. You see, either God is in charge or he's not. All things work together. Now, I, I do need to tell you this. I, I, need to know, I need you to notice that he doesn't say God causes all things that happen. He says God calls, you know, God will use all things. That, he doesn't cause all things that happen. You know, I've discovered in my 45 years of pastoring that God gets blamed for a whole lot of stuff he doesn't do. Sometimes you get mad at God because of the consequences of your own foolish actions. The reason you're in a bind is because you made a decision and it was kind of a dumb one and you got mad at God about it. Why in the world would he let me do it? Well, you did it. And sometimes things happen to us that are bad that are the result of Satan. We live in a fallen, broken world. We've got an enemy. And a lot of times God gets blamed for it. I want you to notice in the text, he says that, that he uses all things, but it doesn't say that he causes all things that happen in our life. No, bad things happen to us. They wound us. And the reason is because we live in a broken, fallen world. Paul has already established that in the first four chapters of this book. God doesn't cause it. And we even understand this too. God doesn't even remove it, right? Now we struggle with that sometimes. It's okay, I understand God doesn't cause it, but he's strong enough he could take me out of it. Why didn't he take me out of the situation? And, and I want you to understand that he doesn't say in the text that, that God removes us from every situation that is bad or God causes the bad situations. The one day God will remove you from it, by the way, there, there is coming a day that we will be taken from this broken world and, and put into that perfect place. But his promise is that out of it, until then, he's going to use everything that happens to us, every challenge that we face in life, he will use. In fact, it's like this. The challenges that we face in life are like the medicine that you take. When you, when you have a illness or sick or have an issue, you go see a doctor and the doctor prescribes medication for you and you go to the pharmacy and you get that medication. Do you know that a lot of the medication you take, the first ingredient of that medication will kill you? It is absolutely poison. But that pharmacist or that pharmaceutical company takes that poisonous substance and they mix it with something else and with something else and with something else and all of the sudden they take that thing that will kill you and they create from it something that will make you better in fact we 
poison every day of her life. Have you ever put salt on your meal? Did you know that salt is primarily made of two components, either of which by themselves will kill you? It's poisonous. But if you put those two together, all of a sudden it becomes salt and we use it. And what God is saying is that, that, that I, I'm working in your life like that. I will take this event that looks like it's going to kill me and, and this event that it looks like I'll never get over and I'm going to put those two things together in the, in the course of your life. I'm going to take two bad things and I'm going to bring something good from that. And so he ultimately says, hey, the content of the promise is that all things work together for the good. It doesn't mean it's fun. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But God will use it. And as last week we discovered, and the reason I put verse 29 in there, as last week we discovered that he, he guarantees this is going to happen because he uses the past tense. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He uses the past tense to say, you know what, this is such a done deal i'm going to speak of it as if it is already done i am going to bring about good and what's the good that we discovered last week the good is not your pleasure the good is not what you think what is the good it is that you might be conformed to the image of jesus that you may be made like him well the third thing that i want you to notice is this look if you will at the condition of the promise this this promise is not universal and I think we miss that many of us think oh I love this promise God causes all things to work together for the good man I can find some relief in the challenges that I face in life but this is a conditional promise you know what a conditional promise is right this isn't for everybody this is not a universal promise. God doesn't make this promise to everybody. In fact, Paul says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, I want to have to tell you something. I absolutely am ecstatic that Paul uses that phrase. Because I... Here's the question. Do you love God? I'm glad that he put love as a condition. And he didn't connect it to my abilities. He didn't say, for those who are living right. He didn't say, for those who are, are going to church every week. To those who have a seminary degree, to those who really understand my biblical truths, to those who, who really have figured out how to live this Christian life. He didn't put any of those conditions on there. Because it's not connected to my ability, it's not connected to my intelligence, it's not connected to my understanding, it's not connected to my talents. It's connected to my love. And, and you know what? You can love God as well as anybody else. 
it is possible for you to love God as much as anybody else. You don't, you're, you're, not, you're not special in a special place. All of us can love God. And that's what I love about this promise. He said, you know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Do you love God? The best you can. You love him. And, and you know what? You can love him as much as the next guy can. All of us can love him. And then he says this, that love God and are called according to his purposes. Those who have been called, you'll know you're called when God reveals to you that you're a sinner separated from him. There's some of you that are in the room today and you know that, I'm a sinner, I get that. I'm not perfect, I've messed up. Now, I don't know if I believe all this stuff about God, and I'm not sure what I think about their virgin birth, but, you know, I, you know, I believe I'm a sinner. I, I kind of get that. I want to tell you something. That's not a normal thing. If you're thinking about spiritual things, that's, that's God calling you to himself. And the first thing God begins to reveal to us is that we are sinners, and we can't save ourselves. That's what Paul established in the first part of the book, that we're not saved because we live a good life or because we do good deeds or because we've been baptized or because we go to church. He said, bottom line is this, you're a sinner and your sin separates you from a holy God and there's nothing you can do to fix it. And God reveals it to you that you're a sinner and you say, you know what? Yeah, I get it, I'm a sinner. And then he invites us to put our faith in him. Not only do I realize I'm a sinner, but God, I believe you love me. I don't know how you could and why you would, but I believe you do. And suddenly the story of the Bible, the story of God coming to earth, if, if we're sinners separated from God and there's nothing we can do about it, then the only way that we can be saved is if somebody comes to earth that is not a sinner, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. All of us are gonna die. Jesus was born of a virgin. That, that's important because he didn't inherit a sin nature like you and I did. So, so, so he was born of a virgin, he, he was without sin. He was at the same time 100% man, he was also 100% God. I don't understand it fully, but, but suddenly I began to think that, you know what, that makes sense, that, that, that God would love me, he would have to do that, and he came and he lived and he died because the wages of sin is death. He died to pay my sin debt. And all I've got to do is ask him to forgive me of my sin and come into my life. And, and he takes my sin and he gives me his life. And there are many of you in this room who have done that. You came to that place where you recognize that you are a sinner. You turn from your sin and repentance and you ask God to forgive you of your sin. And as a result of that, you are those who are called according to his purpose. And he says, here's the promise. You know, you know. Deep down inside, you know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he gives us finally the consequences of the promise. 
It's captured in that statement and, and are called according to his purpose because it reminds us that God has a purpose for our life. And he's making all these things work together toward that purpose. And he tells us in verse 29 and verse 30 that he's going to be successful in that purpose. He's going to accomplish that. And he's going to accomplish it as he makes us more like Jesus. He's going to do it sometimes through the good things that happen to us. And sometimes he's going to make us more like Jesus by using the bad things that happen to us. And sometimes the sad things, and sometimes the sinful things that I do or happen. Sometimes the satanic things that happen in my life, God will use. And often he uses the simple things. But there's the promise. We know with certainty, God will cause all things, there's the content, all things in my life to work together for good. The condition for those who love him are called according to his purpose and then the consequences those that are called according to his purpose again that purpose will happen so what do we do about this well let me just give you some bonus points that are not on the screen in light of what we've discovered today I would say to you don't call bad things good we have a tendency as Christians to try to turn bad things into good. They're not, they're bad. Bad things happen. And we don't have to pretend they're good because God will use bad things to accomplish his purpose. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, you know what? It's a good thing that the stock market crashed because it teaches us to trust God more. And you know, no, some things in life are just bad. That doesn't mean God won't use it, but don't call bad things good. The second thing that I would say to you is this, don't try to explain the unexplainable. Sometimes things happen in life that we can't explain. God doesn't cause all things. And you know what I've discovered that we do as Christians? Sometimes we think we have to protect God. When something bad happens to a good person, we feel like we've got to protect the reputation of God and explain why. Well, you know, it was probably a good thing that that happened to you. Or here's one of my favorite ones. When you lose a child, well, God needed an angel in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lost a child, I'd probably say, well, that's fine and good, but I think he's got enough angels. He doesn't need mine. How does that encourage you? Listen, don't try to explain the things that are unexplainable in life. Sometimes we try to explain those things. And the bottom line is that we live in a fallen, broken world. And sometimes we see what God is doing immediately. And sometimes we just don't see what God's doing. And we have to trust him anyway. We need to have a long-term perspective. Often I've discovered this. It's years later before we begin to see all things work together for good. 
So though the promise is real, it doesn't mean it happens in a week. Sometimes it's a long time before God takes that bad experience and mixes it with this bad experience and adds to it this good experience to create something in my heart that looks more like Jesus. And here's another thought. In light of what we've discovered today, don't seek deliverance from the trouble. You see, the problem with many of us is when we find problems, we just ask, God, get me out of the mess I'm in. Rather than ask for deliverance, ask how God might develop you in the middle of it. God, I'm walking through some tough times. What are you developing within me that will make me more like Jesus? Bottom line, there's only two kinds of people that are here today, two kinds of people that are listening. Those of you who need Jesus as your Savior. And it may be that you have already recognized that you're a sinner. You have entertained the thoughts of what it means to become a child of God. And, and maybe you even have intentions of one day becoming a child of God. I have no problem with that. I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior somewhere in the future. Well, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You know why it says that? Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You may not be here tomorrow. And the only day you've got is today to make a decision for him. There are some of you that have thought about it. There are others of you that are here today and you've never given it a thought. But suddenly today, it feels like this makes sense. It's like that's the decision I need to make. That's God calling you. And today is the day for you to turn from sin to receive him as Savior and Lord. And then there's another kind of person here. <laughs> and that's the kind of person who's already made the decision to receive Christ. And we are the kind of people that should be saying, God, thank you. That in every situation, all things work together for good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. There are those in this room and those that are listening that have never accepted you. And today, your Holy Spirit is calling them to yourself. Today, you're saying, now's the time. Now's the moment of decision. Now's that moment of truth. And I pray you will give them courage to stand up, step out, and receive the gift of eternal life that you offer. For others of us in this room, I pray that you would just renew within us a heart of gratitude that in everything, you're at work. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen and amen. everyone at Southcliff Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.